Hi there. I'm Dr. Sarah Wilson, naturopathic doctor, author, practice mentor, researcher, and passionate connector of the dots of health. As the medical director of Advanced Women's Health and the founder of Naturopathic Clinical Mentorship, I help patients and practitioners to deeply understand the connection between hormones and inflammation so that they can improve their most complex health concerns or cases. Advanced Women's Health, the podcast, is a space for practitioners and discerning health consumers to learn about cutting-edge research in the area of women's health. Before we get started, though, let's set the ground rules. This information is not meant to diagnose or treat. I am a doctor, but not your doctor. I completely understand that you're going to want to implement some of these strategies. We are talking about really compelling stuff, but please always do so with a medical practitioner's support. So let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Thank you for showing up today for yourself and for your patients and being dedicated to staying on top of the medical literature. And I think it's the reason why I wanted to show up with gratitude for you today is because there are so many situations that we could say we're too busy. There's so many situations that we could really look for excuses as to why we are not constantly evolving our practice. It's called practice for a reason. We're supposed to fail upwards. Whether that is in our practices, whether that is in the like as a researcher in the medical literature, that's really what should be happening. And so for all of you who are showing up, who are committed to that growth, I just commend you because I know it's hard. I know that we're all busy, but it really does make everything easier and more rewarding in your practice. So alas, I am going to dive in today because I really want to break down the importance of doing research in terms of staying really up to date on trends that are coming. So oftentimes, which is a surprising question actually to me, um, but I get asked, why are you so passionate about research? So yes, of course, there's an element of being really excited about staying up to date on the medical literature so that I have very effective protocols. That is definitely a huge piece of why I love research. But another piece of it for me is coming to understand the trends, really being able to foresee what is going to happen next in terms of where research is going and where patient practice is going. And this is an example. Um, The study I'm going to talk about today is an example of an area that I think is really up and coming. Um, I think it's going to be incredibly important to understand as a clinician in terms of working in the area of women's health and like reproductive immunology. It's going to be, it's, it's really coming. There's already people who are starting to do it both here in Ontario um, and a lot throughout the United States. And so today I wanted to kind of just open your awareness to what's happening. So this review looking at the influence of PRP, um, so platelet rich plasma on thin endometrial lining and POI came up and This to me is the perfect example of where naturopathic doctors, functional medicine practitioners, and REIs work really, really well together because there is not a good treatment in the 
conventional kind of medical stream model for a thin endometrial lining or POI. They're both conditions that are incredibly hard to manage in a fertility clinic, and they are conditions that really leave women feeling like they don't have any other options. And so then they come to see their naturopathic doctor, they're working with their acupuncturist, and yes, we can get amazing results on our own. To be honest, thin endometrial lining, when you understand the protocols, it I've seen it turn over again and again and again. I've seen women threatened with a canceled cycle and they come in and we get it taken care of. So there's a lot that we can do there. But even with POI, we can feel a little bit handcuffed. And so from that standpoint, what this study looked at was, again, how we can use what they call regenerative medicine um, and use that for the benefit of women's health. Right now, most PRP is being used in the context of sports injuries. Um, It's injuries in general, pain in general, but they're really looking at the kind of regenerative piece from an orthopedic model. That's where most of the research is. And so now they're starting to get creative and play with more and more in the context of reproductive health. But at the same time, these studies are really, really small. So what I'm going to go through with you today is freaking excited. Like when I was reading it, I was like, holy crap, like there's a lot of potential here. But this is going to be something that we have to recognize. It's small studies. And I was talking to um, a medical doctor here about it. And he was like, yeah, I've heard of it, but it's small. And he's really, really progressive. So um, that is still oftentimes the perspective that you'll get if, for example, you have a patient who's going to ask about it. Um, But I I just heard the other day that it is being incorporated into some fertility clinics. So what is PRP, first of all? So essentially what happens in PRP is they take someone's blood and they do like, I think they call it autoanalogous, but it's essentially your own blood. So they take your blood, they centrifuge it down, and they're trying to concentrate the platelets in the plasma. And so generally they're anywhere between two and 10 times the amount of platelets, which contain a lot of growth factors. And that's historically what it's used for in the context of orthopedic injuries, right? Is they're like, we want more growth factors. We want to know what's going on. Um, But outside of tissue regeneration, it's also PRP is associated with angiogenesis changes. So more blood flow with changes in immune responses, cell migration, proliferation of tissues. There are within platelets, so much more than just growth factors, right? Platelets are going to have an impact on, again, like I said, immunological function. Um, they are going to have an, they within them have histamine, right? So histamine, serotonin, all of those are factors that are not fully embraced or discussed yet in the medical literature. And I think have a really, really big component. Um, but then again, more than just growth factors, we forget that platelets are involved in our innate immune responses, right? They are going to be involved in multiple inflammatory pathways. They're involved with binding and destroying pathogens, which so much of the kind of REI world, we're looking at the connection between hormones and inflammation and infections is a huge source of that. So if you can infuse platelets and really address a local source of infection, that's a beautiful thing. Um, So in any situation, there's a lot more that goes into it than just growth factors. Um, but when I had said two to 10 times more, I'm sure that triggered a lot of you researchers out there to be like, what? So I think the most important thing is because this is a newer therapy, there is a large lack of consistency in the methodology. Um, throughout the studies that I'm going to talk about today, they don't 
really eloquently outline how many days did they do the PRP before the lining thickened? How many days between the infusions did they do or injections did they do? Like it was not standardized in the best way that I think it possibly could be in terms of the methodology released. So that's just something that's really important to consider in addition to the small sample size, because I'm like setting you guys up here because when you hear this, you're going to be like, what? (laughs) Because it is really powerful stuff. So when we look at thin lining, it's not a condition that affects a large majority of the population. I think it's like 2.5% ish of women, but We do know that thin linings can be associated with long-term oral contraceptive pills. Uh, More and more research is coming out on the hormonal IUDs and its impact on persisting thin linings. And so these are things that we we need to think about because we are going to see it in our patient population. So essentially, it's defined as less than seven millimeters. And within that, it's associated with failed cycles, canceled cycles, miscarriage, and poor pregnancy outcomes. So it is really, really a big deal. And like I said, most fertility clinics will not allow transfer if it is less than seven millimeters. Some clinics, it's even higher than that. Um, And so they're canceling cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle. And so for these women, it's incredibly difficult because they're not really offered a lot of solutions. Current therapies essentially that are being used is extended estrogen therapy, which is an issue to be honest, because oftentimes what we see in thin endometrial lining is that the estrogen receptors are actually not functioning efficiently. So if you put more and more and more estrogen on, you're actually causing them, those receptors to not be present and be able to be active. I don't have time to get into the full depths of receptor physiology here, but just important to know that if you just throw more and more and more estrogen, it becomes less and less effective. And so that's very important to to think about. We also look at low-dose aspirin, so blood flow, vitamin E, um, sildenafil, blood flow, right? A lot of these things are blood flow based. And then there are studies that are coming out on stem cell therapy. So even though in these situations, though, if you get someone's lining thicker with blood flow, there can still be concerns about endometrial receptivity. One thing they didn't discuss in this study, which I think is really important, is that there's a lot of really great um, research on acupuncture. And so acupuncture, if that's something that you can utilize in your practice or you have someone you refer to, it can be an amazing support system here. So essentially what was done, they, they talked about a variety of different studies, um, but so I'll break them down each one. PRP infusion was performed. Um, so two women got one infusion, four women got two infusions. Um, and so again, very important, they're monitoring that thickness. So if they said, okay, they didn't again specify the period of time, but if they didn't get to that seven millimeters or it wasn't increasing, then they gave another infusion. And then these women all in this situation were beyond seven millimeters by the day of uh, progesterone administration. They all went through embryo transfer. There was um, another study that was performed, which was really, really interesting. So they looked at um, 39 patients who got pregnant. So they had a 61% essentially clinical pregnancy rate um, or chemical pregnancy rate and then 45 clinical pregnancy rate, which was again, super impactful. We need to remember in the context of this, that these are women who had had their cancel cycle, their cycles canceled and 45% of them have a clinical pregnancy, like it's massive. They also looked at another study that was done that showed very similar things. So pregnancy rate, 61%, um, clinical was 50, live birth rate was 41%. So everything being really statistically significant. Um, And again, like they saw cancellation rates 
much, much lower in this population, 50 to 60% lower. So these are many, many more women who have not been able to try to get pregnant. This was a, an RCT, so it was actually a pretty well-standardized study. So I'm going to read this to you guys. Um, but it's just because I love it. Like, I'm like nerding out on this. You should have seen me when I was reading this study. My poor husband. <laughs> My poor son, too. He hears everything. But the endometrial thickness, okay, in the PRP group was 7.21. In the placebo group was 5.67, Okay. And then it was a sham catheter that was used. So it was pretty well controlled. Um, and then they had 12 chemical pregnancies in the PRP group and only two in the catheter group. So 40% versus 6.7%. Um, 10 were, so sorry, that was 12 chemical and 10 clinical. Um, and then only one clinical pregnancy in the other group. So really significant changes there in terms of the outcomes with pregnancy. And again, these are people who would not necessarily have been able to even go through a cycle. So they are talking, a lot of the authors, including the one in the last study there, is talking about the impact of PRP on endometrial receptivity. So not just the thickness, but also receptivity. And if that should be investigated um, in women who have a normal thickness, but receptivity issues. I think it is very interesting. It looks really promising, but we just don't have enough information on that yet. So then we're talking about um, the impact on POI, so premature ovarian insufficiency or diminished ovarian reserve, so DOR. This is a condition that essentially most often in my practice I do see, as I've talked about on the podcast actually, um, I do see that there is a component of um, thyroid autoimmunity and inflammatory changes that is happening that contributes to them having issues with their ovarian count. And so what happened in these situations is they put activated PRP um, and inject it under ultrasound guidance into the ovarian cortex, which is a bonker. So these are women who had um, high FSH, a very low AMH or AFC, depending on what was being monitored. And so they said, okay, yep, we've we don't see that there is viability for pregnancy and then moved forward with the active PRP. So following the PRP, there are um, FSH levels decrease. So I'll read you this. So patient one went from 119 to 27. Um, patient two went to six from, this is FSH, 65 to 10. And patient three went from 46.5 to 20. AMH levels also increased. They called it statistically significant, but to me it's like 0.1 to 0.3. Like it's not that big of a deal. But AFC showed two follicles in each ovary in women who had previously had zero. Okay. And then another woman, and she was 46, and then another woman or two other women had two follicles in each ovary. And one woman actually had spontaneous restoration of her menstrual cycle, opted out of IVF, got pregnant naturally and carried to term. Like to me, working with this patient population, that is mind blowing, like mind blowing. Um, another woman got pregnant. She didn't disclose whether it was natural or IVF though from that study. So absolutely phenomenal. Like these three women, two of them had a baby. It's just, to me, it's absolutely, absolutely shocking. Um, another study showed decreased FSH by 67%, increased AMH by 75%. Again, 
the AMH one, take it with a grain of salt. Like it went from, in this study, it went from like 0.4 to 0.9. So still not amazing, but FSH did decrease quite significantly. Um, two patients got great blastocysts. One patient got pregnant spontaneously again, right? These are women with POI. And then one was um, 17 weeks pregnant at the time of the study. So overall, it's it's a really powerful thing to watch. To be able to have this discussion with your patient, to be able to offer them an option when they're given what is often in the medical community considered an end of the line, right? POI, thin endometrial lining, they're like, okay, we've done what we can do. You're you're done now. To be able to provide someone with the potential to take that next step if they're interested is really powerful. So we need a lot more research. We really, really do. But I do think if you're working in this with these populations, it's very important you stay up to date on this and you understand what research is being done at your local fertility clinics because that's where a lot of this research is happening right now. So I hope that you found that interesting. I know it's a bit of a different approach today because it's not something that you can necessarily take and apply right away, but this is why doing research is important. This is why staying up to date in general is important because if in a year from now, you have a patient who comes in who says, hey, I've heard about this PRP. What do you know about it? It's not going to be a situation where you're coming in for the first time being like, I've never heard of it. I don't know. It just allows you to have fluidity within that conversation to say, it is very interesting. Yes, we need to obviously know much more. Um, But these are the different places that are exploring it. Or if they're with a clinic that is exploring it, at least you know how to work alongside it. So I hope that was helpful. I can't wait to keep sharing all of these little pearls with you guys and have the most wonderful day. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I would love a review because that is how more people find out about us and ultimately get well. If you are a medical practitioner and you're interested in taking one of my courses to learn how to implement these research strategies, see naturopathicmentorship.com. If you're a patient, we have a couple of options. I can try to hook you up with one of my trained practitioners, or alternatively, if you have a practitioner you love, I do offer one-on-one consults about your case to support that practitioner in learning further. For more information on these strategies, see the show notes. And finally, if you just want to keep in touch, I am always active on Instagram and Facebook, and I look forward to connecting with you there. Have a great day and be well.